Hello there! Welcome to the International Business Podcast, a show for those who work across time zones, borders, and cultures. I'm your host, Leonardo, from Shanghai, but let's make it simple and just call me Leo. We also have a new co-host, Stefano, based in Paris. Coming up on today's episode... It's incredible how many companies don't even know how many suppliers in the first year they have and where they are. But then there is supply tier two, tier three, where literally fashion artists don't have a clue where they are, what they do, what they produce for the sub-sub supplier. You know, it might be a piece of a pattern or a piece of a zip or a particular trim. I think it was very interesting also at the beginning of the pandemic to see how big designers, they came out with a clear statement about the fact that uh, that the rhythm that there was before was completely unsustainable. And, um, you know, and even if I think uh, when I started in Burberry, I used to travel to Milan and Paris to meet the buyers so many times. And there was the pre-collection and the, pre, the pre-men's wear and the pre-women's wear. And uh, it was like without um, any sense. And even uh, when you were doing the estimations of the budget, I mean, every time you were going back to Galia Lafayette, oh, can you buy again? Again, okay, I just bought two months ago. <laughs> Nicola and Sennight are both fashion experts. Nicola is CEO of EcoAge, while Sennight is the program leader for the BA courses in fashion business at Istituto Marangoni, London. Did COVID-19 cause consumers to rethink their values and make sustainability a priority? How important is education when it comes to creating a more sustainable fashion ecosystem? You can find more information on both guests in the show notes. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hi, Sennight. Hi, Nicola. I'm glad to have you on. Welcome to the International Business Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. And I would like to start with this question, and I would like both of you to answer to this. So what makes you an international professional? I'm an international professional because um, I have been dealing with the concept of international probably since my childhood. Um, I was born and raised up in Milan from an Eritrean family and now I'm working in London and I've been always working for international companies. Uh, At the moment I'm in Istituto Marangoni and I'm running the BA business uh, for the London school but then uh, obviously Marangoni it's a Milan school I mean it was born in Milan and before that I worked in fashion in the industry in fashion business uh, and uh, I started my career in Burberry another huge international company. So probably um, in terms of the concept of uh, being international, I lived as for being an international person and then also I worked for international context. I'd say that what makes me an international manager is I've been opening companies, I'm an entrepreneur, and I've been opening companies across Europe, uh, mainly England and Italy. You know, through my company, EcoAge, which I founded in 2007, we advise brands and companies all across the planet, literally from Australia, New Zealand, to South America, Africa, Northern Europe, you name it. Uh, I've been advising VC funds on investments across the planet, and I'm an advisor of a growing number of startups which come from sort of all corners of the globe. Today, we're going to talk about the international fashion business landscape, how it changed, how it was affected by the pandemic. So what has happened? And tonight, I would like to start with you. So what are the major changes that 
you have seen when it comes to consumer behavior? And more importantly, do you think that these changes are going to last or are there going to be, I would say, short-term trends? So COVID uh, has been defined now, it's almost one year, and um, it has been defined as a sort of black swan event. And um, many experts recognize how everything changed, our way of living, working, uh, we're working from home, uh, we are, we're recording this postcard from home. I think after one year, probably, instead of just reflecting on changes, because probably many changes have been discussed, uh, have been following the state of fashion by McKinsey, BCG, everyone came out with different reports, uh, and the key changes that they identified are starting from digital, working from home, the online shopping, uh, sustainability, this new awareness, uh, because obviously we were locked in the house. Uh, changes also in our way of uh, wearing um, homeware um, instead of glam and party dresses. Uh, I think now probably in order to have a different meaning uh, in this conversation, probably it's time to reflect uh, which kind of word we can have after COVID. Because after one year, we can't just keep discussing, discussing on these changes. The time now is, okay, let's try to identify what can be the new scenario after this COVID is over. It seems that we're, we're getting closer uh, since the vaccination started across different countries. The new focus of the conversation should be how and what we want uh, to keep in the, in the new scenario. And, um, and then definitely we can reflect on this uh, digital acceleration, uh, uh, a new and more mature approach to sustainability and circularity when it comes to businesses. Uh, uh, retailers have been closed for so many months and um, it's clear that uh, the rhythm that fashion was having before in terms of drops of collection cannot be the same in the next uh, new scenario. Instead of keep reflecting and discussing on which changes, probably now the opportunity should be, okay, what I want uh, for the next. Uh, and uh, probably it's there, the real freedom that this uh, uh, pandemic scenario is giving us in rewriting on a white canvas uh, uh, the next chapter. I was actually listening uh, last Tuesday, there was Akinberg from uh, McKinsey meeting um, uh, the CEO of BOF. And he was actually sharing a, a new trend that is coming out. So from the initial frustration that everyone had with this COVID, oh my God, I, I can't wait that it's going to finish, it's going to finish. Uh, uh, actually, now people, they are living with the virus. So probably that is, is changing also. Uh, the way in which we are adapting and, uh, and probably this adaptation, like a, in a sort of Darwinian perspective, they would be the new chapter of what are we going to be facing soon. Fashion and trade shows, Nicola. So they have been completely, I would say, redefined virtually. For instance, the EcoAges green carpet. So do you think that this will be a long-term scenario? And let's say, do you think that this is a more effective, but also I would say, more sustainable approach to fashion and trade shows as they were before. Thank you, Leonardo. Well, yes, I mean, it's in front of everybody. You know, the pandemic has accelerated the digitalization of everything. And of course, physical events such as trade shows, but also, you know, fashion glamorous events and like the Green Carpet Fashion Awards, have moved online, some maybe better than others, but I would say that the seeds of these changes 
were already present before COVID. This is what a lot of people don't know. You know, we have been discussing with a lot of our clients how to move virtually for trade show for uh, two, three years, actually. So although these are radical structural changes to the industry, they are not black swan events. It was already in the making. And therefore, I believe that this will sort of uh, be the future of how we will carry on trade shows and things like that. And, you know, we will go back to do something physically. People want to meet physically. Uh, We are all missing that human interaction. But I think that, you know, trade show... Apart from the sustainability that we'll talk about in a second, there is, a, there is an economic side of it. They were very expensive, traveling a lot of people in the crew, stock, location, prep, and prop. We are talking about roughly, you know, a big brand will spend up in the millions of euros to organize and deliver one trade show. Now the, the cost of a trade show is a fraction of it and actually you don't even have to replicate it. You do it once and you can net it globally. So there is a financial incentive to stay virtual and not go back to physical. Although I'm sure that the creative minds behind the fashion brands will definitely find a way to blend the two experiences together in a meaningful, organized and coherent way. Talking about sustainability, well, of course, it is much more sustainable. Events in general, the biggest footprint of the, the, the event is the logistic, is the traveling, is the energy and water consumed to deliver it. We don't need anything like that anymore. Yes, there, we, there are, and there are maybe not many studies yet to demonstrate whether we are right or wrong. You know, servers could consume a lot of energy. When you broadcast something very complex, you use a lot of energy. But whether this energy is more, I doubt, than actually organizing a, a, a live event. There is that. But also, if you want, there is on the social side an important aspect, which is the democratization of these shows. All of us remember that going to Milan Fashion Week and joining a show was a privilege for a few, especially the big names, you know, limited seats, limited places. Well, now actually the last person on the other side of the globe that can connect to this show for free. So there is a level of democratization in the use of this information, which I really welcome. The bottom line is the change will stay, but I think there will be a more sophisticated integration with the physical world that what we are experiencing now where we can't actually have the physical side of it we're not going to back to physical we're going to go into a new world where digital and physical will join together and uh, and definitely the virtual the digital side is being accelerated but it was already there so it's a change that is here to stay So to summarize this, Nicola, after COVID, I must keep my Zoom business account. Would that be correct? Well, (laughs) probably. But, you know, it's smart working, you know, if you think about it, it's the same, you know. Maybe we'll do it. We're not going to use Zoom. Maybe we're going to use a tool that we don't even understand and know yet but we're still going to connect via video on, on, on a computer. Do you remember the mini DV kind of fashion that arrived on the market, were used for one year and then shut it away and then MP3 came in, which was completely another thing and no one used it any longer. I think the phenomenon is here to stay and it will keep accelerating. You know, uh, the instrument might change, but the phenomenon is there. I mean, it's so cute. In the last nine months, we entered so many homes. <laughs> 
it's true. Our student homes, colleagues' home, and then uh, it's 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 nice to see also from one Zoom call to another Zoom call. People are changing the background, uh, um, changes also in the interior. From the first month, it was just a, a random decision. Okay, let me find a space. Uh, and then um, somehow, as I was saying, we, we are trying to live with the virus. So then uh, I, I will be missing some of these Zoom calls, actually, if I can say. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah. And tonight, Nicola mentioned sustainability. Do you think that consumers are going to rethink their values and make, let's say, more sustainable priorities or, let's say, make more sustainable decisions? Are consumers more value-driven now? I really like what Nicola said about sustainability said. Um, it was there, uh, but then obviously COVID accelerated everything. Accelerated everything because the two main aspects that came out uh, uh, were, first of all, that we were dealing with unsustainable production and uh, the huge level of consumptions. But then uh, obviously since we entered in lockdown, we had to face that um, retailers, they were closed. There was, yes, the online option, but at the beginning, not so many people were into the online. And uh, probably in our homes, we just discovered that we can live with less uh, of uh, all of those uh, incredible consumption that we were having uh, before. And then also from other perspective, COVID uh, created also a lot of um, constraints in the society when it comes to travel, when it comes to production. Uh, um, there was a better reflection on resource consumption. Um, and then uh, from both perspectives, retailers and brands also, they had to understand how to deal with a, a new way for a supply chain uh, um, even the entire design process uh, for spring-summer seasons that they were showing in September, but also the pre-collection of spring-summer in July. Some brands, they skip that drop with their buyers uh, and they just focus on the uh, spring-summer of September. So definitely, yeah, new values, but probably it was just an acceleration that uh, we needed and it happened with, um, with covid I think now, yes, there is um, a greater awareness of the need for a consistent effort from everyone. As an educator, I feel that uh, Gen Z and the new generations, uh, um, they are more open to this uh, notion of sustainability. It's clear that um, before COVID, it was too much choice and too much greenwashing. And um, it was quite hard to define a clear value-driven action. But now probably reflecting our houses, uh, we are locked in the house. So then probably we, we had a sort of you know, selection of what we really need. And then, uh, and then obviously the new generation, they talk about sustainability. They, they know uh, sustainability because they study also in, in the courses. Uh, and probably in the future, sustainability is not going to be just a course. It's going to be the, the, the good practice of running a business. And Nicola, I would like to move to the supply chain in fashion. So digitization and transparency of the supply chain is one of those words that I guess we have heard the most during the coronavirus time. What are the key areas um, where fashion businesses need further digitization and also transparency to better control their supply chains? Well, uh, let me start by saying that COVID was an epiphany for a lot of companies. COVID has exposed to the plain sight for the old world to see the fragility and the complexity of supply chains created over decades, chasing volumes often rather than quality. 
So chasing actually the, the lower price of production, the lower cost of wages, et cetera, et cetera. And when lockdown started happening, a lot of company got blocked by players. They didn't even know they were in their supply chain. You know, we got, usually companies are now finally starting successfully mapping what is called the first tier of the supply chain, which are the companies that have direct contact and direct collaboration with the fashion house. And it's not granted. I mean, it's incredible how many companies don't even know how many suppliers in the first year they have and where they are. But then there is a supplier tier two, tier three, where literally fashion houses don't have a clue where they are, what they do, what they produce for the sub-sub supplier. You know, it might be a piece of a pattern or a piece of a zip or a particular trim. Effectively, the biggest damage for fashion brands, apart from the commercial aspect, you know, but they still, you know, people, the company have been retailing during COVID online, et cetera, et cetera. They couldn't produce and they couldn't produce because they didn't know where the supply chain ended. That was a big epiphany for a lot of fashion brands and their CEOs. And that's the reason why actually most of the job of EcoH now is focusing during the last year in mapping and risk assess the supply chain of each of the product range and lines. Where they can go better? Well, they can go better by a better control. So first thing is mapping. We don't need particularly sophisticated technology for mapping. We just need a database. Even Excel could do the job. But literally knowing who you are interacting with. And that is also, you know, a, a tool to assess risk of your supply chain. If a company is in a country where there is a constant abuse of human rights or where there are environmental issues, now you can know. You can map their risk and you can act or not act accordingly. That's your choice, but you can, you can have that information. On the other hand, I think there is, a, there is a lot to do on the consumer-facing side of the supply chain. There is an increased demand for transparency from, from people. I don't like to call them consumers. We are people. We are not consumers. People are asking more information. They want to know more for two different aspects. One is they want to ensure that there is an alignment of values between them and the product they buy. You know, a, an engagement ring. Uh, that I want to give full love to my wife has been made with the blood of people working in the supply chain in, in Africa, I'm not going to buy it. So first of all is that. The second part is that actually, especially for quality and luxury fashion houses, traceability, so exposing the supply chain to the customer can increase the perceived value of the product. If the gown that I'm buying is actually processed by exquisite hands or incredible artisan. They've been sort of a, you know, a through family generation, tremendous their skills and jobs. There is an added value to the product that you buy. Clearly, you know, you can perceive that. And there are two main drivers, I think. One is, of course, risk to the company, but the other one is the demand for, from consumers. And tools, you know, there is a lot of talk about blockchain. You know, blockchain seems to be the holy grail, apparently, for a lot of different things. One of these is the traceability of the supply chain. But there are massive barriers because actually a lot of small and medium enterprises wouldn't know how to interact with the blockchain system. A lot of small artisans, they just now have a mobile phone. Imagine, you know, giving them a software on a computer to interact with the blockchain. So there are barriers. 
which we will overcome with time, with new generation, with a digital generation that is going to be used to this. But that's one of the main topics in the market at the moment is, is blockchain. Blockchain for traceability is the main technology that everybody's talking about and is the technology that allows you to have safe, secure data and recording and keep them an historical track record of them. So it's, it's probably the best tool, but we are not yet there. There are successful smaller companies of blockchain traceability, for example, in, in some parts of the jewelry supply chain, for example, on precious stones, on gold. But for the wider markets, it's still quite complex. And Sanite, has the diminishing demand and the acceleration of digital caused brands to, I would say, rethink their value chains? And how do you think uh, are they going to change after COVID? So I think some points also have been touched by, by Nicola, but definitely COVID uh, has been an accelerator for the businesses in order to embrace technology across all the aspects uh, from um, setting up probably in the first weeks of the pandemic, the Zoom account, and then the online website, and then dealing with the suppliers. Uh, I think uh, uh, reflecting on what also Nicola said, uh, this need of uh, tracing the supply chain thanks to technology can happen that uh, and can really give that uh, transparency when it comes to the production of, um, of the garments, of the accessories. Uh, in relation to that, I'd like also to say that probably beyond technology and digital that can be used for traceability, probably in the long run, uh, just because... Um, if we have this clear traceability of the supply chain, probably relationship with the suppliers will be evolving, will be changing. There will be the need for, for stronger partnerships with the supply chain, supply chains that uh, will be having uh, uh, suppliers that have been mapped, uh, that are following ethical values. So then probably linking to what Nicola said, I add that in the long run, beyond mapping, it's going to be also important to have clear relationship and strong partnership with those reliable um, suppliers. Nicola, the amount of unsold, I would say, products because of COVID must be massive. How should brands deal with their unsold inventory? in a sustainable way, but also, I would say, without jeopardizing their own brand's equity? That's a great question. And I think it's an issue that doesn't start with COVID. It starts well before. Pretty much most of the consumer-facing industry over the course of the last 20 years have been driven by volume strategy. It seemed like the more you produce, the bigger you were, regardless of how many discounts you had to do, whether you had unsold items or not. It was about how much can I produce? COVID, of course, has blocked the commercial side and increased the stock of unsold items, but it has only exacerbated a problem that was already there. How do we deal with this? I would identify probably three main solutions to this issue. One is structural, and the structural solution is we shouldn't be producing that much. And we shouldn't be producing that much because we already know that people don't buy that much. And especially technology is giving us an opportunity to profile much better consumer spending by not even country, by town, by location. We can optimize our production. For example, we could find out that in Rome, a particular garment sells only in green. So I don't need to produce the red version of it and then not sell it. The second part is cycling is becoming more and more a solution that 
to fashion houses problem of overstock, both of fabrics and f- finished products. You can upcycle retaining the brand logo. You can upcycle in products that are not even relatable to the original brand. So you can do that without jeopardizing your brand positioning, even if the upcycled product is going to end up being cheaper, for example. And we are glad to say in Italy, we've got one of the biggest players in the world of upcycling, which is Progetto Quid, who won actually the Green Carpet Fashion Award last year. Very young company, 130 people working for the factory, and is the only upcycling company that can actually interact with big fashion brands because they've got a production capability, which is vast. And the third, I, I go back a bit to technology. The trend is going towards mass customization more and more and more. We are seeing most of the new startup coming out on the market in fashion is custom-made products. Custom-made products means you only produce on order, so you don't actually have the issue of overproduction. But also we, we've got robotics, algorithm, and artificial intelligence that are getting inside the factories of the producers. And that allows us a much faster production, a production just in time, so you don't have to produce one millions of products, but you can just produce as the market requires. Of course, the social implications of such a revolution can be dire. We are talking about a lot of job losses, you know, and this is something that we will have to face in the coming year. You know, welfare across companies and across governments will have to change and be revolutionized as well because this technology will bring mass unemployment. On the other hand, as Senai was rightly saying, a lot of companies have skipped the entire production of a collection this year. So uh, I think that the main stock, 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 so the unsold item stock is actually from the beginning of the year because then companies have basically stopped producing. I think it was very interesting also at the beginning of the pandemic to see how big designers, they came out with a clear statement about the fact that uh, that the rhythm that there was before was completely unsustainable. And, um, you know, and even if I think uh, when I started in Burberry, I used to travel to Milan and Paris to meet the buyers so many times. And there was the pre-collection and the, pre, the pre-men's wear and the pre-women's wear. And uh, it was like without um, any sense. And even uh, when you were doing the estimations of the budget, I mean, every time you were going back to Galia Lafayette, oh, can you buy again? And then, again, I just bought two months ago. And uh, yeah, and then sometimes uh, you were asking for spring-summer uh, budget estimations and they were just received uh, the autumn winter because the autumn winter is delivered into the department store around August. And then in September, you ask them again, another budget for a season that they would be receiving in January. So rethinking the fashion calendar, that would be also another step. What is the role of education in all this, Senait? How important is education when it comes to creating a more sustainable fashion ecosystem in the post-COVID world? What is the role of universities in all this? It's huge. It's huge. And uh, Nicola is part of this army <laughs> of my team. Um, I think education can really create uh, uh, the new mindset. Um, and uh, it's not just teaching sustainability. I think it's, um, in, in particular for business students, is uh, teaching them and sharing with them a new mindset because they would be uh, the leaders, the managers, that they will make the decision for the future. Also last year with, with Nicola, we were assessing some uh, business plans of the third year. And even Nicola, he recognized how in about five years, he could actually see how more and more students, uh, 
they're coming out with business idea and this solution, they are quite often uh, sustainable and then some of them uh, circular. So then uh, it's clear that uh, thanks to the sharing uh, of education, uh, the new generation, they can be more open to, to sustainability and, um, and probably in the future, because so far looking at the structure of many business brands, you just have the team of sustainability. So it's going to, in general, it's like four or five people that they're doing sustainability. The future should be having the whole business, uh, like across all the departments, everyone should think in a sustainable way. Everyone should think about solution that could be circular. So the contribution of uh, education is huge. In the future, it shouldn't be just a course. It should be the, the formamentis of everyone that is involved uh, in developing new value chains, in developing new collections. So then uh, that is going to be the key. And Nicola, how would you define the new consumer, pardon me, the new people, you don't like the word consumer, the new people coming out of the pandemic? They are conscious of climate change, but they've been long time spoiled by brands with easy purchase and returns. Do you think actions should also come from people, from the consumers? Well, uh, yes. How would I define consumer? I, I would define people. I would define it as a people, first of all. I think, you know, that we really need to put an effort on this. We are people. We are not voters. We are not consumers. We are not customers. We are, you know, Nicolas and me, Leonardo. We are people. People are coming out of this pandemic. It's taking it all now more than at the beginning of the first lockdown. We are tired. But also, and I don't want to generalize because, of course, you know, you've got also things that have gone worse since the pandemic. You know, we never had so many Novaks in the planet as today, which is nonsensical, to be honest. And so the, the famous thing that was going around easily, we're going to come out of it better Perhaps. But a lot of people that I talked to, uh, a lot of my friends, a lot of my colleagues, I think there was a big realization during COVID. And, and the biggest realization is no one missed a single object, a single thing. Everybody missed people. Everybody missed interaction. Whether it was your parents, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your friends, your puppy just going out, you know, we missed experiences. We didn't miss objects. We didn't miss going shopping, to be honest. We will come out with, from this pandemic with this small but important lesson. We are giving more than before the, the right value to the right things. Uh, so I think that will stay. And so we will have a more, in a way, conscious consumer. That The word that you, you used is absolutely right. On the other hand, Purchase and return, super easy, you know, the digital sphere, the technology will, will, will make the purchasing process, the return process, the logistic ever so much better in the future. It's, it's always going to improve, it's always going to increase the speed, the ease of doing it. The question is whether we're going to be doing it for products with value rather with product with volumes you know, as I was saying before. So I think that will be a big, big aspect of it all. We went from the ownership of the product to the sharing of the product through the famous sharing economy to the virtual product. So the product doesn't actually exist anymore in the physical sphere. You know, it's only virtual. And that is starting in fashion as well. There are a number of startups that create virtual gowns 
for you to attend to virtual events, to Zoom calls, to webinars online. It's quite an interesting thing. You know, we are dematerializing the actual products and we are only keeping the experience of it. I've got one final question I ask everyone who comes on the show and I would like both of you to answer to this. So tell us about one memorable moment from your international career and you can pick one episode which could be successful, could have been funny or even catastrophic. Your pick. So Knight, you want to go first? It's actually something that I always say when I'm meeting the first year students uh, because uh, you have always to give like an overview about your career. What did you do? And uh, I always talk about a leader in fashion that uh, shaped uh, my beginning of my career. And I was so lucky to start my career in fashion at Burberry uh, during the golden age of Burberry, because at that time, back in 2008, uh, there was a huge CEO, Angela Arendt, and she was coming from America and she brought in also Bailey, Christopher Bailey. And uh, yeah, uh, I remember when I met her for the first time on the, on, the, on the lift and when she asked which floor, I said yours. <laughs> and then she was, what do you mean? And I said, oh, sorry, yeah, third floor. <laughs> but then I couldn't say anything because I saw her and it was Angela Arendt, the CEO. And then she was so polite. She said, which floor? So, which floor? And then I said, yours. Got confused, basically. So yeah, but then anyway, uh, I always mention her as a, as a huge leader. She was one of the first to start talking about well-being inside the company, sustainability. That was the time when Burberry had the beginning of the Burberry Foundation. Uh, both Christopher Bailey and Angela Arendt, they were very for, you know, redefining the supply chain. During uh, her years as the CEO, um, she revised also all the supply chain agreements with some of the manufacturers that they were having. Uh, she, she made the big miracle of Burberry because back to 2006, 2007, Burberry was uh, having a down moment. Uh, well, for me, I think uh, it was the first time that I failed. Uh, it happened with EcoAge. Uh, I failed business-wise. We were at the second year of EcoAge. EcoAge was a shop actually, uh, and Lehman Brothers collapse, the financial crisis, the biggest one we had, had ever experienced, strikes UK very violent, violently. The company was bankrupting, literally. I didn't have any money, I didn't have any clients coming through the door, and uh, I really didn't know what to do. My business, my business idea was failing because of external factor but also maybe it there was a part was my lack of experience i never been a shopkeeper for example i didn't understand the cash flow side of the, sh- the retail business and all these sort of things and uh, then gave me the biggest lesson of my life which is the importance of the culture of failure which is disregarded completely today in all sorts of education, a university level, a schooling level. You know, we live in a culture of success. You've got to succeed. You've got to do it young. You've got to do it first. You've got to do it better. And, and, and social media is even exacerbating this, you know, where everybody exposes the successful part of their life, but not very much the unsuccessful sides, you know, they all think is unglamorous, is not cool. But actually, I think failure is more cool than success. It's where I, I learned the most. It was when I failed. And I, and I did fail a few other times, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes in my entrepreneurial career. 
and those are the times where I, I got better much more quickly with better ideas. It gave me focus to find the solution. And I came out of it with a big lesson. We have to go back and teach failure to people. Failure is good. Failure is healthy. The thing that you have to do is get, get up again. You know, get up again and learn the lesson. It's quite interesting. When I, when I worked at venture capital level, I, the first question that I asked to every single startup that came to my office was, did you ever fail? And a lot of people were like, no, I never. And I said, that, that's the door. Thank you very much. I'm not going to invest in someone that has never failed. A, because if they never fail, they fail. <laughs> Once I gave them the money, they're more likely, you know, the statistical probability that they fail is bigger. But the second thing is that I don't think they learned the most important lesson yet, which is get up again. And we got up again with EcoAge and we completely revolutionized the business. You know, we went from a shop to be a B2B consultancy company to a B2B agency uh, that does integrated service between consultancy and marketing. So sometimes you learn the lesson and you completely revolutionize the world around you and the company that you have founded. And that teaches you, again, failure is important. And also don't stick to the initial idea because context change. And if you don't change with context, you fail. That was awesome. Thank you, Nicola, and thank you, Sun Knight. And I would like to wrap this up by asking both of you who should connect with you after listening to this episode. And also tell us a little bit more about your current role, company, and job. So um, at the moment, I'm the program leader for the fashion business BA uh, at Instituto Marangoni. Looking at the structure of the course, we are offering the BA in uh, business, uh, business and buying, and business and communication. So regarding my role, I mean, it, it's quite um, exciting every day. I teach, uh, then also I'm, I'm actively involved in the project that the students are doing by, by the units. Uh, Nicola is one of our guests. We created our X-Factor business uh, about five years ago. Uh, yeah, because uh, Nicola is coming for the third year students. Uh, he has been coming for the last five years and is uh, listening to some of the business ideas that they have for the final major project. We call it X Factor because it's a real X Factor. So it's a sort of pitch at the beginning of the academic year and then they have other meetings. Next week is the next episode. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. I like to, you know, see the students uh, meeting the industry and uh, I can see that they have a sparkle when they're doing that. Uh, they, they become adults, probably more adults in those moments. Uh, and uh, yeah, they take on board the feedback uh, coming from the industry and then they work on what uh, they have to prepare for the units. And, uh, and sometimes uh, we're also having um, those moments where they can actually understand that what they are proposing doesn't work. Uh, Nicola can confirm that. Uh, and it's nice to see how um, they go back home and then they, they try to rethink a possible solution and then, um, yeah, and then they are ready for the next episode of The X Factor. <laughs> In terms of connection, um, I don't know, on LinkedIn, I, I receive different connection from people from different backgrounds and uh, um, I'm a bit of a hybrid profile, so being... Um, working now in academia, but then before in the industry, and I'm still consulting. So I'm open to different profiles, either from academia or from the industry. 
And yeah, for me, I'm, I'm the CEO of EcoAge. I'm a farmer in my farm. I, I'm a startup advisor. My you know, daily routine is literally juggling between one role and the other one on a sort of an hourly basis, uh, which is quite complex, I have to say. And now my working is making it even more complex because before I could have some time to switch between one and the other one. Now, literally, I can go from, you know, working in the field to a Zoom call while I'm still in the field, then going back to work on the website and things like that. So uh, there is a level of complexity which I still need to work <laughs> on i have to be completely transparent and honest but you know it's my, my job is 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 on one side today because you know being an entrepreneur i can tell you that the first years of the company you do everything you go to the post <laughs> you clean the toilet of the office and you inform the strategy of the company interact with the shareholders today i would say i'm more focused on the share, shareholders the financial admin of the company informing the strategy. And after all, the job of the CEO is listening, listening to people, trying to help the people get the best out of themselves, try to delegate effectively to these people, get them to own what they do and create the culture of ownership and good failure, uh, as I was saying before. And in terms of contacts and how people can get hold of me, either via LinkedIn, uh, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I'm not on, uh, on, uh, on TikTok and, and the most recent platforms, I have to be honest. Or they can see me. I, I lecture for Senec quite a lot and we do a lot of things together with Marangoni. Uh, with also, I, I do quite a lot of collaboration with Bocconi University, with Milano Fashion Institute, with um, Instituto Europeo del Design, YED. My life is a bit of a juggler, <laughs> which I like. It keeps me entertained. So tonight, Nicola, I want to thank you for your insights. Thank you for joining us on the International Business Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Leonardo. It was a great pleasure knowing you. Subscribe today to listen to more international business stories. We have new guests every Monday. Connect with us on LinkedIn, info in the show notes. See you next week. Cheers.